I, I'm still a pretty new dad. My oldest child is six. My youngest child is one. And um, I don't have a lot of sage advice that I could give you yet because I'm still in the thick of it. And I don't even know yet if I'm doing a good job. We're going to find out if, if I'm doing a good job. But what I can give you is, fathers, I can equip you fully with some great dad jokes. All right? So dads, get out a pen and paper because you're going to want to tell these to your kids. Here's some dad jokes for you. What do you call, what do you call a laughing motorcycle? A Yamaha. <laughs> oh, you know, I tried to eat a clock the other day. It was really time consuming. You guys know what time of day Adam was created? Just a little before Eve. Hey, if you need an ark, I know a guy. Oh, come on. Everybody's reaction is not a laugh. It's a, oh. It's like all, every dad joke laugh right there. You guys know who the greatest babysitter mentioned in the Bible is? It's David. He rocked Goliath to sleep. You know, the greatest comedian in the Bible was Samson. He brought the house down. Turn with me to Judges chapter 13. We're going to be talking about Samson today. Uh, I was thinking about how appropriate it was that we're talking about Samson on Father's Day, one of the most manly men in the Bible, yet not a good example to follow. And and I'm not saying that about dads in the room. I'm just saying we, we all think Samson is that picture of American masculinity, muscular, He's a player. He can have any woman he wants. He throws parties. He does whatever he wants. This is what American masculinity is, and Samson is kind of the depiction of that. But today, we're going to look at the life of Samson, and we're going to kind of see some highlights from his life and learn some lessons from the life of Samson. If you're joining us for the first time today, we've been going through the book of Judges, a little bit differently than how uh, many people go through the book of Judges. A lot of times when we read the book of Judges, we look at the characters of Judges and we kind of do a character study. But what we're doing is we're looking at a central theme throughout the book of Judges. And it's this topic of spiritual entropy. And entropy means that if something is left unattended or unaddressed, it's going to naturally gravitate towards chaos and disorder. It's what happens in your backyard when you don't pull the weeds. Weeds sprout up if you don't address it. When you don't clean up your house, uh, your house gets messy. When you, when you don't attend to relationships, personal relationships, relationships with God, those relationships begin to fall apart unless they are addressed. And throughout the book of Judges, we see a cycle of entropy as the people of God finally move into the promised land. In the book of Judges, the Israelites have moved into the promised land. They are inhabiting the promised land that God had promised all those years before to their father Abraham. But what happens? They experience a season of peace and prosperity. And much like us, when we experience good seasons in life, we begin to rely a little bit less on the power and the presence of God. We become a little less dependent on the Holy Spirit, a little bit more dependent on ourselves. And our Bibles sit on the shelf collecting dust. We spend less and less time with God. We go to church less and less. We we stop devoting time to wanting to be in the presence of God. And Israel begins to do this. They experience peace and prosperity as they're living in the land that God has promised them. But after time, over time, they fall into sin. And they begin worshiping the pagan gods 
of the Canaanites that were still living in the land. And because of their sin, this cycle of sin brings them into pain, and they begin, uh, they get overtaken by their enemies until they finally cry out to God for a deliverer, and God raises up a judge. And while that judge is alive, Israel experiences a time of peace once again, but then the cycle repeats. And this cycle happens 12 times throughout the book of Judges. Because the people of God could not learn their lesson. They could not identify the signs of spiritual entropy. What are the signs that we are slipping into spiritual entropy? That we are moving farther and farther away from God. What are the signs? And how do we intercept those signs? How do we identify them and change them and intercept them? And so throughout this series, we've been talking about eight signs of spiritual entropy that we can intercept and that we can... Uh, we, we can offer to God so that we can stop the cycle of entropy in our lives. As we read the book of Judges, as we read the story of Samson, I'm going to be jumping around. It's, it's, uh, it's Judges 13, 14, 15, and 16. There's four chapters in the book of Judges that are dedicated to the story of Samson. And instead of reading all four chapters this morning, we're going to go through, I'm going to skip around a little bit to some highlights of his story. We're going to start at Judges 13. Verse 1, at the birth of Samson, it says this. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man named Zorah, named, uh, a certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite. Dedicated to God from the womb, he will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Verse 24. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Manea, Dan, between Zorah and Eshtal. So Samson has a really great start to his story. In fact, if you read the whole chapter, it's, it's this amazing story. The angel of the Lord, they, uh, Samson's parents offer a sacrifice to this, to this angel of the Lord, which is essentially uh, Jesus incarnate in the Old Testament. It's all, the, the, the incarnate God in the form of an angel appears to his parents and uh, they, they want him to come and stay and eat dinner. And he says, no, make a sacrifice for me and I'll, I'll receive your sacrifice. So they, 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 they create a sacrifice for the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord consumes the sacrifice with fire and then disappears into the fire and ascends into the sky. And it's this amazing encounter where Samson's parents drop to their, their hands and their knees. and Oh, we are undone. We've seen the Lord. We are going to die. They're terrified. And Samson grows up and he... He receives this vow on his life. It's called the vow of a Nazarite. And a Nazarite vow was something that we see only a handful of times in the Bible. It was typically, uh, many scholars believe that the Nazarite vow was supposed to be a short-term vow. That it was something that you did uh, as you interceded, or it was almost like an extreme form of fasting, if you will. That, that you, you, became, you took a Nazarite vow in order to receive an answer 
to prayer. And we see in the Bible that people would take these short-term vows. And in the book of Leviticus, there's instructions for how to be released from your Nazarite vow. And so in the New Testament, actually, uh, Paul is writing to, I believe, I believe, don't quote me on this, but I believe he's writing to the Corinthians. And he tells uh, there were some, some men there who had taken a Nazarite vow. But in order to be released from the Nazarite vow, you had to pay a certain amount to the temple, to the priests, for them to, to go through the ceremonial cleansing to release you from their vow. And these men were very poor, and they couldn't afford to be released from their Nazarite vow. So Paul sent money to them so that they could be released from their Nazarite vow. It was intended to be a short-term thing, but there are two people in the Bible that many scholars believe had a lifelong Nazarite vow commitment. One of them was Samson, and the other one, uh, many scholars believe that the other one was the prophet Samuel, because Samuel uh, is mentioned to have never cut his hair, and so it's, there's an indication that Samuel might have taken a lifelong Nazarite vow as well. And so Samson committed to becoming a Nazarite from birth, which meant three things. You can't drink anything fermented, no wine, no fermented drink. You can't touch anything unclean or eat anything unclean, any dead bodies. You couldn't even be around dead bodies. And you cannot put a razor to your head. You could not cut your hair. Those are the three commitments of the Nazarite vow. We're going to go to Judges 14, starting at verse 1. If you flip the page. Samson's older now, and this is where his story gets a little bit of a bummer. Judges 14, verse 1, Samson went down to Timnah, and he saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, isn't there any acceptable woman among your relatives or among our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She is the right one for me. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. For at that time, they were ruling over Israel. Samson went down to Timnah together with his family and mother. And as they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. And he went down and talked to the woman, and he liked her. Come on, dads. This is what, this is what we all want to do, right? We want to tear a lion apart with our bare hands. Come on. I've been watching Gladiator and Braveheart a little too much throughout my life. I want to be. Verse 8 of Judges 14 says, Sometime later, when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass. And in it he saw a swarm of bees and some honey. He scooped out the honey with his hands, and he ate it as he went along. And when he rejoined his parents, he gave them some, and they too ate it. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. Remember his vow. Judges 16. We're going to chapter 16, so turn a few pages. Verse 1. One day Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute. And he went in to spend the night with her. Now Samson's uh, really taking a turn for the worse. Verse 4. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him in into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. 
So Delilah said to Samson, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. And eventually, you know the story, Delilah lies, or he lies to Delilah. He tells her the wrong thing three times before he tells her the right thing. He tells her, oh, if you tie me up this way, I'll lose all my strength. And then she does it. And you'd think that when he wakes up after his hands are tied, knows, notices that this woman has tricked him, he'd go, wait a second, I can't trust you. But he doesn't do that. Samson doesn't do that. He goes, oh, let's try this again. He's, he's, he's lust struck. He's blinded by this pretty woman. And then he says this, verse 17. Eventually he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I've been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. And when Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more. He has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistine returned with the silver in their hands. After putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair. So we began to subdue him, and his strength left him. The story goes on. We're not going to continue to read, but Samson, his eyes are gouged out. He's captured by the Philistines, and he is set to entertain thousands of Philistines in a pagan temple. And they're all worshiping their God. They're all dancing and mocking him. And they ask Samson to come out and entertain them. And Samson instructs one of the servants to bring him to the pillars that support the temple so that he may lean against them. And he gets there and he feels, he feels the pillars and he asks God for one last bit of strength. God, would you... Would you allow me the strength to avenge, my, to, 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 to have vengeance on my enemies and destroy this temple? And so he pushes the pillars with all of his might, and the temple comes down. And the Bible says that he killed more people in his death than he did while he was living. What a crazy story. It's a crazy story. Samson was the one that God chose to lead Israel, but he was not a very good guy. He's not the model to follow. We don't want to be like Samson. He seems completely immoral. He's not the example of what we want to follow. And throughout the story of Samson in Judges 13 through 16, you can see how impulsive Samson is, and yet God's Spirit still enables him to defeat thousands of Philistines. Why? Why does God's spirit still fill Samson and still enable him? God still uses Samson despite his completely immoral behavior. God still uses Samson to deliver Israel because at his birth, he told him that I'm going to use you to lead Israel from oppression. Why did God do it? Because God's plans are greater than any one person. You might be thinking, well, what do, what do I have? Maybe, maybe you feel distant from God in this place. And you're, you're saying, man, how could God ever use someone like me? I've done, I've done too much. I've just like, I, I've, my hands are dirty. My heart is unclean. I don't know how God can use me. Can I encourage you that God's plans are bigger than yourself? This is why he sent Jesus. He sent Jesus so that he could use broken people. If you look at the roster of all the people that God has to use, you will see that there is no perfect person on this list. 
Jesus was the only perfect human being to ever walk the earth. He was the only perfect one. God has no perfect people. And he uses imperfect people to carry out his plans because his plans are greater than any one person in the sin that they might find themselves in. So as we're talking about signs of spiritual entropy, we're going to talk about two signs this morning. The first sign is this, coming from the lessons of Samson's story. The first sign of spiritual entropy that we have to intercept, we have to recognize this, is that in, in today's culture, in our day and age, this is, what, this is one of the things that will bring us into, into spiritual entropy is we forget and break the covenant commitments we have made before God and others. We forget and break covenant commitments that we've made before God and others. Keeping your promise is very important to God. He is a promise keeper. His word is true. Nothing he says is a lie. Nothing he says is untrue. Nothing he says is false. And he's created you to bear his image. And when people look at the church, when they look at the people of God, they're supposed to see promise keepers. People who are true. Keep their word. Samson, he had a good beginning. There's an angel that speaks of his birth. He's got godly parents. The spirit of God is upon him from his childhood. He starts so well. And from his childhood, Samson makes a vow of a Nazarite, which, like I said, has three parts. Touch no unclean thing, drink no wine or fermented drink, and don't cut your hair. And perhaps you caught this, but throughout Samson's life, Samson systematically breaks each one of his vows. Throughout his life, he systematically breaks each one of the promises he made to God. He kills a lion and eats the honey from its carcass, touches something that's unclean. In Judges chapter 14, we didn't read this, but you could read it later. In Judges chapter 14, verse 10, you see that Samson hosts a drinking party. He brings a bunch of people over to his house after he kills the lion, and he, he, he gives them a riddle. And, and you can see there's, there's it, it, it's, when you read the text, many scholars agree that this is not just a, a hangout. This is a drunken party. And Samson is hosting this drunken party. He breaks the second one of his vows. And later he tells Delilah the secret of his strength, and she cuts his hair, and he loses his power. Why was the cutting of his hair the thing that surrendered his strength? It wasn't necessarily that that one thing was the, the end-all, be-all, most important thing. It was because it was the last of his vows to break. He had already broken his vow by touching something unclean, hosting a drunken party, and now he was breaking his final vow as a Nazarite, and he lost his strength when his hair was cut. And today, many people, including myself, are not good at keeping promises, Come on, some of you have, have parents, have people that you look up to who have promised you things in your life, and they haven't come through with their promises. And so when you read Scripture and you read the promises of God, there's something in your heart that says, yeah, but I don't fully trust it. Is God really going to keep that promise? Is he really going to give me peace? Is he really going to always be with me? Has he really fully equipped me for everything I need? Is he really... My provider. I don't know. I don't trust it because we have earthly models that have let us down. We have people in our life that have let us down. And the words I do become I don't more and more quickly. 
And there's few people that are surprised. Now, I understand that there's many divorced people in this room. And I, I want you to hear my heart. This is not a word of judgment. This is not, I am not speaking to you. Many of you maybe had biblical reasons to divorce your spouse. And so please don't hear me, hear this message or hear this word as condemnation. My point is, is that the people of God are called to be promise keepers, not promise breakers. When we say I do, when we make a commitment, when we make a vow to the Lord, we are, we are to uphold those vows, those commitments. And when we joyfully hold to our marriage vows and seek to live them out each day, we find health and strength in the covenant relationship with our spouse. When we honor agreements and contracts in the marketplace, our integrity is preserved and people trust what we say and what we do. When we say something to somebody in the marketplace and give them a promise or a contract or an agreement or tell them that we're going to be there at this time, we're going to do it for this price. When we honor those agreements, our integrity is preserved and you reflect the nature of God because you are part of the body of Christ. When people look at the church, they're supposed to see an image of Jesus. Now, I know that it's an imperfect image, (laughs) and we are far from perfect. But my point is that we are to be promise keepers, not promise breakers. And the most important promise to remember, the most important promise that you have ever made is the vow that we made to God. The promise that we made to God to love him with all of our hearts, all of our soul. To love them with all of our mind and all of our strength. And to love one another as we love ourselves. It's the greatest commandment in the Bible. And when you said yes to Jesus, you said yes to loving him and to loving people. And when we do this, we can overcome spiritual entropy. We can, we can intercept we can intercept this tendency to fall away from God because the more and more you break your promises, the more and more you become a person that's not integrous, the farther and farther maybe you feel your conscience becomes seared and you begin to feel farther and farther away from the Lord and the cycle of entropy ensues. But if we in- intercept this, and we become promise keepers, then God can use our lives even more. That's the first one. The second sign of spiritual entropy, and we're going to spend more time on this this morning, is this. It's our desires and impulses begin to rule our lives rather than the Holy Spirit of God. Our impulses, our desires, what our flesh wants, what we want to run after impulsively, those things begin to rule our lives instead of the Holy Spirit. One of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. And when the Holy Spirit is filling you and you're leaning in to the presence of God, you're leaning into the Holy Spirit, he gives you self-control. It's the ability not to be ruled by your impulses, not to be ruled by what your flesh wants, not to be ruled by what society says that you need, by what culture says is acceptable and what's normal, but we begin to be ruled by the Holy Spirit and we have self-control. Samson was a walking impulse machine. He was just like, I want it, I want it, I want it, I'm going to do it. If he wants it, he takes it. If he sees it, he gets it. In Judges 14, verse 1 and 2, we, we we read it already. Samson went down to Timnah. He saw there a young Philistine woman, and when he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah, 
Now get her for me as my wife. Do you get the sense that Samson got to know her? He built a deep and intimate relationship with her. He talked about their hopes and dreams, and they fell in love. No, he likes what he sees. I see it, I want it. End of story. In verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 1, he sleeps with a prostitute. It's most likely a pagan temple prostitute. There were temple prostitutes all throughout that area, and so he was most likely sleeping with a temple prostitute. Delilah, Delilah was another poor romantic choice that Samson made. He sees another beautiful woman, and he falls head over heels in lust with her. He is a walking impulse machine. I want it. I'm going to get it. Samson had the power to fight off a thousand Philistines with a donkey's jawbone, but he could not fight off his own lustful impulses. Let me say that again. Samson had the strength to fight off a thousand Philistines with a donkey's jawbone. Come on, don't. We have, we have great dreams. We have great expectations for our lives. We, wanna, we want God to use us in mighty ways, and we want to... We want God to put us in the hall, heaven's hall of fame. God, would you use me? Would you use me? God, do something mighty in my life. And God says, yeah, but you can't even take care of what's in your heart. You can't even control your own impulses. You can't control what's going on inside of you. How can I trust you with something bigger if you can't steward the things that you're already dealing with? Does that make sense? Listen to me. David, King David... Before he was ever put in front of a giant, before he ever fought Goliath, he was in the secret fighting a bear and a lion. It was in the private place that he, that he slayed a lion and a bear, and it gave him the strength and the confidence to stand before the giant in the public place and say, I have taken out a lion and a bear when nobody was watching. And so God's going to deliver you. God's going to deliver you to me, just like He delivered that lion and that bear. If David had not taken out those things in the private place, he wouldn't be equipped for the public place. God needs to make you bigger on the inside before you can do something great on the outside. You have to develop deep roots, a deep root system in the presence of God. Where you are being built by the Holy Spirit. You are being challenged by the Holy Spirit. You're being cleansed and you're leaning into God's grace. This is not a performance thing. This is a a message. This is where you come to God and you say, God, I don't have what it takes. I need you. God, I don't have what it takes. I'm, I'm, I'm I'm not equipped for this. And you begin to lean into God and he gives you the strength in the private place that's equipping you for the public place. This becomes a weakness in Samson's life, this impulsiveness. And many followers of Jesus, they have a spiritual battle that keeps coming up over and over again. And maybe you find yourself just discouraged. Man, I've just tried to take care of this for years and it just doesn't seem to go away. You can, you can identify with Paul when he says, I do the things that I don't want to do. And I just can't seem to do the things that I want to do. Maybe you can identify with that. You're not alone. You're not the only one in the room. 
You feel like maybe there's a barrier between you and God, and God can't use you unless you take care of this, or, or you can't get close to God unless this is dealt with. You feel like there's something in between you and God. You're not alone. Why is it so difficult to win some of these battles? Why is it so difficult to fight off impulsive patterns and behaviors in our life? Here's four deadly characteristics of sin that we need to recognize. We need to recognize that for many of us, sin, impulsive behaviors, impulsive sin, it's convenient. That's the first thing. It's convenient. The sin that many people struggle with, it's easy to get a hold of, and it's right around you. Which is why we are to always remain vigilant. That you are not safe. That it's always around you. It's convenient. The second thing is that it's self-gratifying. When we enter into sin, it usually feels good for a moment. It's temporarily good. It makes us feel good. But God says, no, I want to be the one that makes you feel good. Oftentimes we use sinful patterns and and things in our life as coping mechanisms. Because we don't know how to feel what we're supposed to feel. We don't know how to lean into God. And so instead we go to the convenient thing. The thing that's most immediately gratifying to make us feel better. But the Lord says, I want to be your joy. I want to be your peace. I want to be the thing that fills you with love, that fills you with hope for the future. Oh, I don't want that. I just want to be numb. I just want to numb out. I'm just stressed. I'm anxious. And when I turn on the TV and I just look at the, and I just veg out, I'm just numb. And I want to stay numb. That's what we often do. We do things like that. And God says, no, 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 no. Lean into me. Come to me. Give it to me. Let's go through this together. Yeah, it's going to be hard. It's going to feel terrible at first. When you start to really feel the things that you're supposed to feel, it feels terrible. It feels horrible. The third thing is that oftentimes sin, sin is culturally normative. It's normal. It's fine. Go for it. What's the big deal? Everybody else is doing it. It's legal in the state of Washington. Right? You can, whatever you want to do, just go for it. It's culturally normative. Everybody's got this idea of, of like, what's fine and what's not fine. And our, our standards don't come from the Bible. Our, our, our definitions don't come from the Bible. It comes from, okay, well, what's legal? Or what do, what's everybody else doing? Or what am I going to get the, less, the, the least amount of flack for when I post on Facebook that I'm doing this? You know? And the last thing is this. It's attractive. It's like a candy apple filled with poison. I like it. It looks pretty. It looks good. Think of the fruit that was hanging off of the tree in the Garden of Eden. It was pleasing to the eye. It looked enticing. That's what she wanted. Oh, there's something behind this fruit. Oh, God's, God's trying to withhold something from me. God, God doesn't want to give me good things. So I got to get him myself. The, the serpent said, Eve, no, God knows that if you eat of this fruit, you're going to be like him. What's the truth? Eve was already like him. She was made in the image of God. Adam and Eve were created created in the image of God. But the serpent deceived them and said, no, God doesn't want you to be happy. He doesn't want the best for you. 
He knows that if you eat this fruit, you're going to become like him. And God's selfish. And he doesn't want you to have what you want. So she gave into it because, you know what, I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust myself. I'm going to trust the voice in my ear and not trust the word of God, what he said was true. And it was attractive and pleasing to the eye. And we all need to ask ourselves the question, is there an area in my life where I'm driven by my impulses? Honestly, search, search ourselves this morning. I, church, this message is just for me as it is for you. This is a message for me. I have to search my impulses. Is there an area in my life where I am driven by my impulses? Is there something that keeps getting the best of me? Is there something that keeps coming up? I don't know how to take care of it. In Ephesians chapter 5, I want to talk about what God has given us. The strategy that God has given us to overcoming impulses is actually to lean into the grace of the Holy Spirit, to the power of the Holy Spirit. What does that look like practically? What does that look like? Well, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul compares God's relationship with the church to an earthly marriage between a man and a woman. He, he gives people a picture in Ephesians chapter 5 that God's relationship with the church is a lot like a marriage between a man and a woman. That's why when you see a wedding ceremony, what you're actually seeing is this earthly presentation of a heavenly reality. That God loves his bride. And the picture is that when you say yes to Jesus, you enter into a covenant relationship with God and you make a vow to remain faithful to him. Just like when you get married, you stand before that person, you say, I'm choosing you for the rest of my life, for better or for worse, you're the one. I'm making a commitment to you that you're, you're it. And you make a vow to that person. And so when we say yes to Jesus, we make a vow to Jesus saying, I am, I am promising to remain faithful to you. But as we all know, and we read the story of God's people in the Bible, and we inspect our own lives, we realize that humanity is unfaithful time and time again. We can't keep that promise. No matter how hard we try, we cannot keep the promise to remain faithful to Jesus because we become so allured by other things in our life and we're driven by our impulsive behaviors. And we turn left and we turn right. We're driven by other things and we just cannot stay faithful no matter how hard we try but the good news of the bible is that god is always faithful he has never once said well then i can't have any part of you you were unfaithful you broke the covenant did you know that according to the bible and according to god's standard that he has every right to break the covenant between you and i he has every right to say no i don't want this anymore because if somebody's unfaithful, then the Bible says that there is a, there's a release from that covenant. But God has never broken the covenant, and he promises he never will. God is always faithful. No matter how unfaithful we are to him, God is always faithful. He has never said, no, I don't want you anymore. He's always faithful to his bride. He keeps receiving her despite her flaws. That's why the book of Hosea so amazing. If you haven't read the book of Hosea, today go home and read it. It's a story of how God loves us despite our unfaithfulness. 
And this is one of Paul's most central theological themes throughout his writings. It's God's faithfulness despite our unfaithfulness. In Romans chapter 3, verses 3 through 4, Paul writes this. He says, what if some were, were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Is he going to break it off? Then he says, verse 4, not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. God is always faithful. He will never break his promise. How many of you have ever tried to break a cycle or a pattern of sin? You don't have to raise your hand. But how many of you have ever tried to break a cycle of sin using sheer willpower alone? I'll raise my hand there. I'm just going to try harder. I don't need to tell anybody about it. I don't need to cause a mess. I'm just going to read my Bible more. I want to come to church every Sunday. I'm going to wake up at 6 and pray every day. I'm just going to try. I'm going to try on my own. And after a couple years, maybe I'll tell somebody it's something I used to struggle with. But right now, I'm going to buckle down. I'm going to do it myself. Has that ever worked out for you? Because let me tell you, if it has, you need to talk to me. It's never worked out for me. I've tried that. It doesn't work. But instead, we're called to lean into the one who's always faithful, even when we don't seem to have the power. I love this quote. It's by Abraham Fuller. He's a 10th century writer, and he wrote this. He said, sin is to be overcome not so much by direct opposition or by sheer willpower, as by cultivating opposite principles. Would you kill the weeds in your garden? Plant it with good seed. If the ground be well occupied, there will be less need of the hoe. If you occupy the soil with the things of God and the things of the kingdom, there's less and less room for the weeds to grow. Oftentimes we think, no, I've just got to pull the weeds out and I've just got to try hard to keep them out. And God says, no, I need you to fill that soil with good things. I need you to fill the soil with things of God, with with my things. I need you to spend time in the presence of God. I need you to, to be governed by the authority of Scripture. I need you to stay engaged with the church community so you can fill the soil with good things. You can occupy the soil with the things of the kingdom. What he's saying is that you have to fill your heart with the things of God so there's not room for anything else. Nothing but the grace of God can set us free from impulsive behaviors. Sheer willpower doesn't do it. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 12. says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. It's the grace of God. What did Paul tell Titus was the thing that enables us to live self-controlled lives? It's the grace of God. It's his grace. And it's his power that we have to learn to rely on. If we don't lean into God's grace, if we don't, if we don't admit to ourselves that I'm imperfect, that I need help, that I don't have things figured out, God, I need you to, I need you to be here with me. If we don't admit that, we don't lean into the grace of God, we can't overcome impulses. I love this in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Some of you here might be thinking, well, 
I don't know what to do. I just can't help it. It just feels like an addictive behavior. I just, I just run to this thing. I just, I just tend to do this thing. I just, I, I, I've tried to stop. I've, and, and maybe it's, maybe, who knows what it is. Maybe it's looking at things on the internet. Maybe it's impulsive shopping. Maybe it's gossip. No matter what you do, when you're with this person, you just can't help but speak bad about other people because it just, you feel like you can relate with this other person when you do that. I just can't stop myself. But 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says this, no temptation has overcome, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And then he says, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. There is no temptation that you have been faced with that God has not given you a way out of it. That God hasn't given you the strength to endure. He's given you the strength to endure it. He's given you an escape. We don't have an excuse to say, I just can't help it. I just run to it. I just do it. God says, no, I've given you a way out every time. But here again, it's God's faithfulness that's mentioned as the answer to overcoming impulsive desires. It's what he's done, not what we've done. Another thing that God has given us to overcome sin and temptation, get ready, it's one another. He's given you a community of faith. Because when you said yes to Jesus, you were not saved into isolation. You were not saved into a silo or a vacuum of just you and God. That's all I need, just me and God. Even God looked at Adam in the beginning and said, it's not good for you to be alone. Instead, you are saved into a family. You're saved into a community of faith. Galatians 6, 1 through 2. It says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. There's a key word. How many of you have ever experienced the opposite of a gentle word from somebody in the church? Get your act together, man. Just stop doing it. Don't come back until you've got it fixed. But he says you should restore that person gently. And then he says, but watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. The Greek word for burdens, it means heaviness or weight or trouble. Maybe some of you here are in trouble. You're carrying a weight. You're carrying a burden. And Paul's t- telling the Galatians to carry each other's weight, to carry each other's troubles, to come alongside that person with a gentle word and pray for them and help restore them and, and, and be there with them. Walk alongside of them. Don't, don't forget them. Don't neglect them. Don't cast them outside. But come alongside of them and walk with them. God has given us each other. He's given us the community of faith to help overcome impulsive desires. We're supposed to bear one another's burdens. Maybe you have not been very connected in our church, but I just want to encourage you. One of the best things, I believe, for for this is is to join a small group. I know that the ch- churches push small groups like it's like something, some quota they have to fill. Like we got to have an, this amount of people in small group. And that's not true. 
We don't do that. We've, I firmly believe, I believe we are a church of small groups, not a church with small groups. We, we believe that freedom comes in the context of relationships. James chapter 5 says, if you confess your sins to one another, you can be healed. You will be healed. That freedom comes in the context of relationships. And if you're not plugged in, if you, if you don't have a group that you're meeting with, if you don't have somebody that you can trust to speak into your life, this is, this is just not going to happen here on Sunday morning. Like, hi, bye, have a nice Father's Day. What are you doing? I'm barbecuing. Okay, see you later. And you leave. It just doesn't do it. But when you carve out time throughout the week and you're honest with one another and you say, okay, I'm going to let my guard down in this group. Is that okay? And you find a safe place. You find a group of people that are safe, which I hope, I hope that's what we are cultivating in our, in our small groups. So that's what I want to cultivate is safe places for people to be themselves and drop their guards and to be real. That's where freedom happens, church. When you begin to, begin to admit that you're not perfect, you stop the charade, you take off the mask, because guess what? Look around the room. Everybody in this room has got stuff, a lot of stuff. And we're all trying to hide our stuff. And because we're all trying to hide our stuff, we're judging everybody else on their stuff. And we say, listen, if you don't bring up my stuff, then I won't bring up your stuff, okay? And so we're quiet, and it's this, like, don't talk about the stuff. But God says, I want you to talk about the stuff. I need you to bring it to the light. You need to put it out there. You need to bring it into the light. Because if it stays in darkness, then the enemy has a hold of it. But when you bring it into the light, then it can be transformed. And it can be restored. What does that mean? It means that God can take even the mistakes of your past, and he can use it for his glory. He doesn't sweep it under the rug, pretend like it doesn't exist. He says, no, 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 because you had that experience, you can now help other people who are having the same experience. Because you have experienced freedom from that, you can help other people who need freedom from that. The most unbreakable vows are the ones that God makes to us. Did you notice in the story of Samson that even though he broke his vow, by eating honey from a dead animal, drinking wine at a party, God was still using him to defeat the Philistines and deliver Israel. Why? Because even though Samson broke his vow, God was still upholding his vow to Israel to deliver his people. He promised that he would. God never breaks a promise. His words are always true. I've got ten promises of God for you as we close, and I'm going to ask Christina to come up here. Here are 10 promises that God has made for you. And these promises, you can tank, you could take these to the bank. Don't think about all the people in your life that have broken promises to you. I want you to think about a God. Think about this moment that we are in the presence of a God who has never broken a promise in his entire existence, which is forever. He's never broken a vow. He's never broken a promise. Why would he start now? Here are 10 promises of God. And I'm, I won't read the whole scripture, but I'll, if you want to write these down, I'll give you the, the references. God promises to strengthen you. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 16. God promises to give you rest. Come on, if you need to hear these words, just receive these promises over your life. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, Jesus said, come to me all who are weary. 
carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. God promises to take care of all of your needs. I'm going to read these anyway. Philippians 4.19, And the same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. The fourth one is God promises to answer your prayers. It might not be the answer that you were looking for, but he promises to answer your prayers. Matthew 7, 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. God promises to work everything out for your good. He doesn't promise that everything will be good, that it will feel good, but he promises that it's for your good. Promises to work out everything for your good. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. God promises to be with you. Joshua 1, 5. I will not fail you or abandon you. And this is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. If you feel alone, God is with you. God promises to protect you. Psalm 91, this I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God, and I trust in him. Does that mean I'll always be comfortable? No, but it means he will protect you. God promises freedom from sin. Hallelujah. John 8, uh, John, 1 John 1, 9. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. John 8, 36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. God promises that nothing can separate you from him. Romans 8.38, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you. Come on, let this, let, this one's for me. Let this sink in. And when I mess up, I think that I, I'm separated that I'm so far away from God that there, I just can't get close. And God says, no, nothing can separate you from me. And the last one is that God promises you, God promises you everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3, 16. These are only a handful of the promises that God has for you. But as we read scripture, as we read the Bible and we receive these words, these promises, they begin to fill the soil with the things of the kingdom. And there's less and less room for the weeds because we're so full of God's promises in our life. And we're so expectant to receive the promises of God. Would you stand with me, church? If you're ready... I'd like some of us to recommit our lives to God and remember our vows together. Maybe you maybe you are new to church or new to the faith. I want to encourage you that there's a God that loves you, that wants a relationship with you. 
And if you want to say yes to the person of Jesus and say, listen, I've, I've, I don't know this God. I don't know this God that promises to be with me all the time. I don't know this God that promises to, to forgive my sin. I don't have a relationship with him. If that's you, I want you to be bold this morning. I want you to raise your hand right now so I can pray over you. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you up. Just raise your hand so I can see your hand nice and high. Anybody in the room? Praise God. Here's what I want to do together. I want us to, I want you to repeat after me. And these are, these are promises. Maybe you didn't know some of these promises, but when you said yes to God, these are some commitments you made. If you really believe in the, in the Bible, if you believe the Bible is the word of God and it's the authority in our lives, these are some of the promises that you made. And so if you're ready, I want you to speak these out loud with me as I say them. Repeat after me. God, because you have rescued me from sin while I was still your enemy, I make a commitment to pursue you in a way that is all or nothing. To allow my life to be governed by the authority of Scripture. To be sensitive and fully submitted to the Holy Spirit. To cultivate an extraordinary love for people as Jesus did. To have a servant's heart. To share the gospel with everyone I meet with boldness. To stay engaged with the community of faith that you have established. To be just in my personal dealings. And seek justice in the world. To be generous with my time. And my talents. And my treasures. And to stay accountable to others confess my sins so that my family and I can experience your healing power. Holy Spirit, give me your grace to keep these promises. Amen. Father, we pray for your grace to keep these promises in our life. Lord, we are unfaithful time and time again. We fall short. But we know that you never fail, that you are always faithful. So, Father, I pray that those of us with children wouldn't see perfection, but they would see the pursuit of God. God, I pray that our spouses wouldn't see perfection, wouldn't seek to find perfection in us, but they would seek to see the pursuit of God in our life. God, I pray that our co-workers, those people around us who know that we belong to you, they wouldn't seek to see perfection because we're not perfect. They would seek to see the pursuit in our lives. God, we pursue you in an all-or-nothing way. We're not holding anything back. We give you our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Love you, church. We'll see you next Sunday. Happy Father's Day. Have a wonderful time with your families.